open your Bibles this evening to the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth, and we shall conclude our study tonight. Ruth, the third chapter, is where we left off this morning and where we'll take up tonight with very little in the way of introduction. Remember, chapter 1 introduced us to Ruth. Chapter 1 described Ruth's commitment to the God of Israel and to Naomi and the Israelites. Chapter 2 introduces Boaz and shows the relationship that Boaz had with Ruth and the kindness showed her and her character as a virtuous woman as she showed that toward Naomi and toward Boaz and the rest of his work crew. In chapter 3, we have Naomi, a very practical mother-in-law, is she not? A very practical one, looking out for Ruth's best interest and working, not just praying, but working to find Ruth a husband. And that's what we covered this morning as we looked at verses 1 down through verse 5. Now this evening we come to verse 6, and we find again the obedience of Ruth. And she went down unto the floor the threshing floor, and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. Remember, Naomi's instruction had been, Ruth, I want you to go down there tonight. You, You watch where he lays himself down. And when they turn off the lights, the fire burns down. And you mark the spot, and you go and find him, short sheet him, and lay down at his feet. How many of you who have been in the service or been to summer camp or were cruel to your brothers used to short sheet your brothers? Remember what a short sheet was? Where you'd pull the sheet up, there was two ways to do it. One, you could tuck it so much in at the bottom that they never had enough at the top. The other way was to put so much at the top that their feet would come out from underneath it at the bottom. We used to call it short sheeting at camp. We, we took great delight in doing that because, sure enough, you wouldn't sleep comfortably with your feet, you know, uncovered. And the purpose that Naomi has here is for Ruth to subtly wake him up during the night by realizing that his feet aren't covered and there's some creature down there, and then he would tell her what she ought to do. But it's nothing we haven't pulled once in a while on some of our own friends when we've uh, short-sheeted them. And that's what Ruth here did to Boaz as Naomi had instructed her. I love the obedience of Naomi. You don't see any balking, any, but what about this idea? But are you sure that's going to work? Trusting her mother-in-law and going and doing it. And believe me, a Moabite in the land of Israel with a mighty man at that in the presence of a whole group of reapers who are going to be sleeping close together, she's going to tiptoe in between them and pull this off. That's a brave woman. And she followed her mother-in-law's advice and shows initiative again in doing something difficult. Let me point out one thing about Boaz. Before I conclude this evening, we want to see some virtues in Boaz also. Here's a virtue right here. Keeping your finger here, let's look at Proverbs 27. I just want to remind you of something from Bible economics that you learned and that Boaz practiced. In Proverbs chapter 27, Proverbs 27, 
and verse 23, this verse was used in support of rule 6, which is work smart. 27.23, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks, and look well to thy herds, for riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure to every generation? One of the rules of Bible economics is to know your sources of income and to be fully aware of the situation with your investments or with your employment, with your career, whatever it might be. This verse is talking about flocks because that was a source of income, whether it was the wool, whether it was the meat, whether it was the milk, whatever. You were to know your flocks well. Now look where we find Boaz, who was a mighty man of wealth. Is he back at home in his 13-foot oval bed? That's what Wilt Chamberlain sleeps in, by the way, for some of you neophytes. Where is he at home in a waterbed, or is he out laying on a pile of corn on the threshing floor? We know where he's. He's out laying on the threshing floor using corn, stalks, husks, whatever, as his mattress because he is going to be right there with his production. He's not one of these absentee owners that lets things go to seed. Just look at it. Here's a, he's a mighty man of wealth. He already had a foreman. Didn't we already read about an interview with the foreman? But he's still there. Listen, that's his capital out there in that field, and he's there diligently knowing the state of things with his barley and wheat harvest. Agrees so well with what Solomon said. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to Boaz later. Verse 8. Well, before we even read verse 8, in verse 7 it says that Ruth didn't do anything until Boaz had eaten and drunk. Now, this morning I mentioned that some mothers teach their daughters the fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach, and usually it's mom that's got to do the winning because at that age, daughter doesn't really know how to win a husband with her cooking. That takes a few years of experience. But Boaz... We all know that a good meal and something to drink does relax and put us in a good frame of mind. A good meal does that. Boaz has now had his good meal. There's nothing unscriptural about feeling good by food or drink. And I had several verses, but trust me, we do not have time tonight to look at them. Deuteronomy 14, where we were to eat and drink strong drink and wine before the Lord and rejoice with our families. Deuteronomy 14, 26. In Judges chapter 9, there's a parable given where wine is speaking by saying that it cheers the heart of God and man. Psalm 104 and verse 15 says that wine makes glad the heart of man. Food and wine are a blessing of God to give us merry hearts. They're one of the things. Solomon, how many times did he say in Ecclesiastes, this is your portion, eat drink, and be merry. Not tomorrow we die, in a sense, yes, but he also teaches the fear of the Lord. But eating and drinking are two of the supreme pleasures and privileges of life. Boaz Boaz has had his share, and this is when Ruth approaches him. Verse 8, And it came to pass at midnight that the man, that's Boaz, was afraid, and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, I know that some of you may think I push Scripture too far, but I like to visualize what's taking place. You wake up in the night. You've been short-sheeted. You feel around down there with your feet wondering what happened to your bedding. And you poke in to the soft side of a woman. 
It said the man was afraid. I mean, what would you do if you woke up in the middle of the night, poked around down there at the end of your bed and pushed somebody? You'd be afraid too. And Boaz was afraid. We shouldn't be all that surprised with that. But think about what, what, what went through that poor man's mind. Boaz was a sober man. Boaz wasn't used to women laying at his feet and short-sheeting him. So he was afraid. And he turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. She didn't say, I'm Ruth, babe. You know, the one that you're in love with. She said, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Now here's her proposal. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Now I want to deal with each one of these phrases. First of all, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. What do we see again? Her utter humility and submission to Boaz. Even before marriage, she humbles herself and submits herself to the man that's going to be her husband. I am Ruth, your servant. A handmaid is nothing but a servant, like Hagar was Sarah's handmaid. Hagar was Sarah's servant. And she says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Now listen, when a woman talks that way, he's not going to kick her out of the threshing floor yet. She says several things that are very appropriate to keep him calm. One is, I am Ruth, your servant. Now remember, she's been reaping with his reaper, gleaning with his reapers for several weeks. He knows her. He knows her sterling reputation, and now she's acknowledging herself again, as she did in chapter 2, as his servant. This is a very wise woman. Look at 1 Samuel, while you keep your finger at Ruth, 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. We live in a society where women have been raised and the, the whole influence of our media is against this kind of behavior. So I'm fighting an uphill battle to even read these passages of Scripture for a woman to call herself a slave or a servant of a man or her husband. But if a woman wants to be a virtuous woman the way God wants her to be, she will recognize her place and behave that way and verbalize that. What does 1 Peter 3 say what women ought to verbalize toward their husbands if they want to be a godly woman like their mother Sarah? Call their husbands Lord. Now, if he's Lord, what does that make you? His servant. His servant. Now, I want to show you another woman that said the same thing. But before I do that, I always get nervous up here talking this way. Do you know why? Because I believe, and I've got a very critical mind that's always wondering what you're thinking, I believe that most of the women are probably saying, at least in some part of their precious little hearts, well, that's easy for you to say, you're a man. When I preach that women ought to call their husbands Lord and subject and submit themselves as servants, from their standpoint, now the husband has a completely different, I would, t tell him, I would talk to him completely differently than that, but that's your duty as a wife. Most of you somewhere inside are probably saying, that's easy for you to say, you're a man. That is why I constant, I often refer to my career at Michigan National. Forget it. I've called lots of men Lord. Sir, 
Would you like me to get your coffee, sir? If he would have said, I need, listen, I've done all kinds of things for men's automobiles. I've taken them down to the shop. You say, that was kind of degrading. I thought you were a vice president. I was a unique vice president. I served my masters, and I called them Lord, and I subjected myself as a servant. And the reason I bring that up is I get tired of women saying, that's easy for you to say because you're the man. If you're a godly man, every time your husband goes out in the workforce, he's got to do the same thing, and that is subject himself to some other man, some cases, some woman, who might happen to be his boss. He's got to treat her like Lord. If he's doing it the godly way, he's doing that. Don't you ever think that God has put on you a burden that he hasn't put on the men. Listen, we've got to go work for guys. I didn't think their intelligence was room temperature. I was so frustrated at Michigan National about some of the leadership in that bank, but I'm telling you, they were God. They were my Lord. I did whatever they wanted within reason. But I was always respectful when I didn't, wasn't going to do what they wanted me to do. I'd have a good basis and I would follow due order, due process of expressing my disagreement with something they wanted me to do. And a woman has that option also. Do you hear me, women? Listen, I've done it. I've called men, Lord, that I didn't exactly respect as perfect human beings. And I've submitted myself to them. And was it hard? No, it wasn't. I loved every. I loved it. I loved being a good servant. I knew that I was the best officer that served the management of that bank. And I took pride in that. And every man should take pride in that as being the most diligent of the servants serving the respective employer. It's not a burden. Listen, God put that man there. And I realize that if someone's not making the decision, and if the buck doesn't stop somewhere, that company's going to fail. Someone's got to be in charge. I can recognize authority. And the reason I describe what I did is for you women not to think that because I'm a man, I talk the way I do about women. I talk the way I do about women because God told me to. And in 1 Peter 3, he said that wives should call their husbands Lord and treat them accordingly to that title if they're to be a godly woman like Sarah. Now, Ruth calls Boaz Lord, chapter 2, calls herself servant, chapter 3. But I want you to see another woman in 1 Samuel 25. And this is Abigail. Let me remind you something about Abigail in verse 3. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. Now here's a beautiful woman who also has good understanding. Because you're beautiful doesn't mean you can get away with more insubordination. This woman had the beauty, but she also had good understanding. And let me show you how she addresses David before and after his proposal to her. Verse 30, verse 24 will be her first address to David. This is before she knows anything about his interest in her. And she fell at his feet, verse 24, and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be, and let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience, and hear the words of thine handmaid. Notice the, the humility. 
Notice the humility, friends. This woman of good understanding, a beautiful woman, a wealthy husband, calls David Lord, calls herself a servant, falls down and says, will you please hear me? Demands no right to be heard, but asks if David would even listen to her. David likes that. Any man will. Hint, hint, you single women and girls, any man will. Look what David did. David, verse 39, And when David heard that Nabal was dead, yea, even before his body was cold, set, well, that's not there, but I don't think it took very long because he's still handy. Remember, he was running all over Judah trying to get away from King Saul at this time, and he's still right there. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord that hath pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and hath kept his servant from evil. For the Lord hath returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and communed with Abigail to take her to him to wife. Now that's verse 39. And verse 41, she doesn't take long in answering the proposal. She arose and bowed herself on her face to the earth and said, Behold, let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Women, you can do one of two things. You can say she was sick and belonged in the hospital, and that kind of language or that philosophy doesn't belong in the 20th century, or you can look at that and say that is an example of a woman that God the Holy Spirit said had good understanding. Wow! Was she humble? I'll be a servant to wash the feet of your servants, my Lord. I'm your handmaid. That's after the proposal when she came to be his wife. You know, she didn't come, she didn't come storming in saying, well, let's get our checking account turned over to both of our names and make sure that we have joint accounts and we have a partnership going. God never teaches that anywhere in the Word of God. If the woman would take that attitude... I believe she'd find as David took care of his wives and as Abraham took care of his, she'd find a very loving husband because a husband will love that kind of an attitude just like a master will reward an employee who has that kind of an attitude. You wait upon your master according to the book of Proverbs and you'll be honored. You treat your husband that way and you'll be honored. Now, you don't have to say, you don't have to say well, why don't you hire some servants so I can wash their feet? It's the philosophy, it's the attitude that these women have. Do you see it? She said, back to Ruth chapter 3 and verse 9, I am Ruth thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid. She keeps calling herself a servant. And now she's proposing by saying, spread your skirt over thine handmaid. Now, that may be difficult in the 20th century to understand because men don't generally wear skirts. But this is an expression of Bible love for the man to put his skirt over his wife. It was a custom in Jewish weddings, and in Orthodox ceremonies, it still is a custom of Jewish weddings for the man to take his garment and throw it over his wife as a, a visual picture of the protection he's now putting around her and over her. In the book of Deuteronomy, in two places, when it talks about a man committing adultery with his father's wife, it describes it as not discovering thy father's skirt. 
See, when that man put that skirt over his woman, that's his. That's it. No one else gets to see it. That's a covering of the eyes, the covenant of marriage. And when a man goes into his father's wife, it's called the uncovering of the father's skirt. Let me give you another example. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we read this chapter a few weeks ago, God passed by and saw that uncut baby lying in the field, and it says it was the time of love. What did he do? So I cast my skirt over thee and covered thee. It's an expression used in marriage ceremonies of how the man would put his garment over the woman as a, as a picture, as a representation of him taking her into her protection. Now remember, Ruth had come in and lifted up his garment. Whether it was his sheet or his robe, we're not sure. But it was whatever was covering his feet. She had lifted it up and pulled it back. Now she's laying there at his feet. Throw your skirt, spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid. Literally and figuratively as the expression, she's basically saying, will you marry me? That's what Ruth is saying to Boaz. Will you marry me? I am Ruth thy servant. Will you marry me? Cast thy skirt over thine handmaid. Now she uses just a little bit of persuasion. For thou art a near kinsman. You have the right, Boaz. You have the right to marry me because you're a near kinsman. And he said, verse 10, he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter. For the... <laughs> they didn't talk quite the way we do, do we? did they? Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter. For thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning. Now, what was the beginning? The beginning was when she took such good care of Naomi and her dead husband. Remember that Boaz had recognized that in chapter 2 and verse 11, when he said to Ruth, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband. See, Boaz knew that she was a kind woman and that she had shown great kindness to, to Naomi. I mean, to be out there gleaning in the hot sun every day, Boaz recognized that as an act of kindness. But now he says, For thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning. I mean, even more than gleaning in the hot sun, you went after an old man, is what he's going to say. Inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich, I mean, in Beth Bethlehem was not a bad little town. There were, there were young rich men there. There were young poor men there. Ruth could have had someone else. Obviously, she was a young woman. Old women don't get young men. She was a younger woman. And what Boaz is saying is, you've shown great kindness in the beginning, but you certainly have shown a lot if you're interested in me. I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Will you marry me? For thou art a near kinsman. The guy's probably been scared all along. I can't propose to that woman. I'm too old. Who knows what he was thinking? I'm too old for her. He might have already had his eye on her. We don't know. All we know is that all she said is, will you marry me? And he, he, doesn't, take, he doesn't say, wait a week. I need to think about this. He comes back with some very positive language immediately. Blessed be thou of the Lord. Now, what is that? Is that a negative response or a positive Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. 
And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Why did Boaz, who was a very godly man, a rich man, want to marry Ruth? Because she was a good dancer? Because she liked the same ice cream? Or because she was a virtuous woman? What a testimony Ruth had. This is the statement, Ruth chapter 3 and verse 11. And now, my daughter, fear not. You can imagine Ruth was fearful, being that forward in a situation like this. He said, don't fear, Ruth. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Listen, you are a catch, and I want you because you're a virtuous woman. I'll do everything that you want. I will marry you in answer to your proposal. Verse 12. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. There's a little spoke thrown into the plans. Now, Naomi didn't realize this. Naomi, as far as we can see, thought that Boaz was next in line for Ruth and everything was rolling along smoothly. And then Boaz says, And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. Howbeit, there is a kinsman nearer than I. I like the way he put that. Yes, I'm near, but there's one nearer than me. There's someone between me and you, Ruth, that has the right under the law of Moses to marry you before I do. Boaz doesn't criticize Ruth's forwardness in coming and laying at his feet, which I find very positive that she did nothing that was immodest or immoral in doing so. He commends her kindness, and he is appreciative of the fact that she had pursued him. And he agrees to marry her because she is a virtuous woman. Now, we don't know exactly the relationship of Boaz to Elimelech. He very well could have been a brother, but between him and Elimelech was another man who was the third brother, and he was in line before Boaz to marry the widow of the deceased brother. But we don't know. God has not told us exactly what the situation is. The law must have been very particular in describing the order that you went in in marrying that, deceased, that, that widow of the deceased brother. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it must have been communicated by tradition from Moses and the elders of Israel, because Boaz perfectly understands that he is not next in line. He says in verse 13, Tarry this night. He's not going to send her home in the middle of the night. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth. Lie down until the morning. What he's saying is we've got to do it according to the law of God, and if he'll marry you, and listen, she, need, she needs a husband. She, she doesn't need to be out there gleaning if a husband can provide for her. So there's a kinsman that can marry her, and if he'll do it, well, that's well, at least she'll have a husband. But then he says, if he won't, I'll do it, and I swear by God I'll do it. Now, you tarry here all night, and don't worry about anything. Now, in verses 14 through 18, the rest of the chapter, we see some precautionary measures that Boaz takes to protect his own reputation and that of Ruth. And she lay at his feet until the morning. Well, that's not bad. I mean, they've already proposed, and they're already going to marry each other, but in this situation, you see a very virtuous man and a woman. She stayed right where she was at his feet 
and God the Holy Spirit put those three words there for us. She lay at his feet until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another, while it was still too dark to be able to recognize anyone else. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. I mean, that's where the reapers slept that Ruth had intruded in the night before. Also he said, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her, and she went into the city. Now that little she, if it was a he, you'd have the he Bible of the King James Version. Remember, that's Ruth 3.15, the he and the she Bible. She went into the city. It obviously is she based on the context. Verse 16, And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? Who art thou, my daughter? Are you still Ruth? Uh, we don't know their last name, do we? Let's say it was uh, Elimelech. Ruth Elimelech. Are you still Elimelech or are you Ruth Boaz? You know, making up last names since we don't have one. But she's saying, Who art thou, my daughter? She knew who it was. She knew it was Ruth. She calls her daughter. Who art thou? What's the good news? What happened? Can you see the excitement? This woman loved matchmaking. And she wants to know the results of her scheme for Ruth to propose to Boaz. Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Now let me mention exactly what Boaz was doing. First of all, he didn't send her home at midnight. What kind of a woman is out in the middle of the night according to the book of Proverbs? A harlot is out in the middle of the night. You don't send a virtuous woman home in the middle of the night. Remember, she had come before it was dark to the threshing floor. She waited till it was dark, marked the spot, and then went to him. And he had her stay right there until morning while morning is breaking, morning time. Then he sends her home. The second thing he said is, don't let it be known that a woman came into the floor, keeping her reputation clean. They didn't sleep with each other. She slept at his feet, and the Holy Spirit tells us that. She rose up before she would be recognized, and they kept silence about the whole thing. And then he gave her barley to take back to her mother-in-law, because he said, go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. I mean, a woman coming back at 6 a.m. in the morning empty-handed, what would anyone suspect? But if you come back with a veil, you know, with six measures of barley in it, what's someone going to su suspect? You've been busy. Early in the morning. <laughs> Very early in the morning. I mean, to get, have that barley. But notice Boaz, just prudence. If you look at some prudence, there's some things Boaz is doing to protect her reputation because he might not end up marrying her. He realizes that. She slept at his feet. No one's going to know about this. He sent her home in the morning to keep her reputation pure, and he sent her home with some barley so that it looked like she was on business. Now look at Naomi. Then said she, in verse 18, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he hath finished the thing this day. Do you know what that is in, the 20, in 20th century language? You've got him, Ruth. You've got him. Wait to see how this thing's going to work out. You've got him. He isn't going to rest until the thing is finished this day. Boaz has some initiative. Boaz, Naomi knew it about Boaz, and Naomi also recognized the way the events went that night, Ruth had Boaz. And yes, you can talk that way. I mean, after all, it was Ruth that proposed on this occasion, and he said yes rather quickly. Ruth had him. Naomi knew it, 
And now she realizes that Boaz, known for his character of initiative and getting things done, is going to find out right quick what he can do to help her. Now we come to chapter 4 in the book of Ruth, which is the reward of Ruth and shows the Lord's blessing upon those who seek him. Here's Ruth the Moabitess. She lays at his feet and beseeches a wealthy and mighty man of Bethlehem, an Israelite, to marry her. What will come of it? Will the Lord be in the matter? Verse 1 of chapter 4. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsmen of whom Boaz spake came by. Now that was rather quick, wasn't it? I mean, he goes to the gate of the city, sits down, and who appears? The one man he needs. You believe in the providence of God? I mean, God believes in marriage, and he's going to get this thing on the road. And the kinsman appears right there in verse 1. And, and notice the Holy Spirit isn't just, behold. What's the behold there for? Shock. Wow, shock. Right. I mean, Bo, Bo, Boaz just gets the gate, and the guy appears. Behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, that is Boaz speaking, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. We're going to call this man No Name. We're going to call him No Name for a reason. God has left him in obscurity. He gives us the name of Elimelech. He gives us the name of Boaz. And a relative, very important between the two of them, is ignored for good reason. Because he wouldn't marry the virtuous woman. No name, no name in chapter 1. Not settling now in verse 2 for two or three witnesses, Boaz calls together quite a crowd. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. Remember, he was a mighty man. They listened. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it beside thee. And I am after thee. That is your first, I'm next. And he said, I'll redeem it. Greedy. We're going to call him Greedy No Name. He wants the property. You can imagine family plots... It's all in the family of Elimelech. It's probably property adjoining his, and all he can envision is adding to his estate with Naomi's portion. And also that Naomi, now being a widow, you know, poor woman, selling in desperation, probably get a good bargain too. I'll redeem it. You're going to see, you say, well, you're being hasty in judging him as greedy. Well, you just wait a minute and see if I'm being hasty. Now, holding there at Ruth, come back to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 25, and let's read something about the sale of land in Israel. It was limited. Leviticus chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23, the land shall not be sold forever. You were not to sell your inheritance as an Israelite, for the land is mine for ye are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption 
for the land. If thy brother be waxen poor, and hath sold away some of his possessions, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. If you were poor, God would let you sell the land to provide for yourself. But even if you sold it, let's say you were of the tribe of Judah, and you, or of the family of Elimelech in the city of Bethlehem, and you sold it to someone else, any relative had the right to come along and buy it right back. The other party could not hold the property because God wanted it kept in families. That's how strong the property rules were of redemption. They could come by and redeem it. If thy brother be waxen poor, now Naomi's poor, she needs to sell her property. She's also using it as quite a, dow a reverse dowry, if you will. And hath sold away some of his possession. And if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. It, it didn't matter if someone had bought the property and they wanted to keep it and they loved it. If you were a relative of the family that had to sell it in need, you could come by and redeem it. That it by, to, to redeem something is to buy back. Re, again, deem, to buy it back. You could buy the property back and they couldn't hinder you from doing so. Now in Ruth chapter 4, Boaz here is laying everything out in the open. He's not playing any games or hiding anything. He's informing this no-name kinsman of the exact situation. Naomi's in need. She's come back from Moab. She's poor. She's a widow. She's going to sell a parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech, our brother. You say, well, I thought you told us you didn't know what the relationship was. Well, brother in Scripture, just like daughter, Boaz has already called Ruth daughter. What, what am I supposed to do? Assume that we've got a real close family. You know better. You just got to be careful with that word, brother. Boaz here lays out the whole thing before no-name kinsman. Naomi's a widow. She's poor. She's going to sell a piece of property that was a limelex. You're first in line, and I'm advertising it to you to buy it before the inhabitants of this city. That's the ten men who are witnesses because everything was done formally and out in the open. If you want it, you can buy it right here and now. And if you won't, and you're first in line, then I'm next. He doesn't say a thing about Ruth. Now, Boaz is being honest and crafty. Right? First of all, he deals with just the land. Maybe the, guy, maybe the guy's in a financial pinch. You know, harvest is just taking place. He hasn't sold his crop yet. Maybe cash flow won't allow him to buy it, and he can get rid of this kinsman without even bringing up the woman. Do you, do you see that? He doesn't bring her up yet. Well, the guy with the greedy no-name, you know, he'll take the property. He says in the last part of verse 4, I will redeem it. You can just see the grin on his face. Aha! You know, I'm going to get something over Boaz. I'm going to expand my estate. Then said Boaz in verse 5, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess. Notice what he calls her. Not Ruth the virtuous woman, you say, you're reading too much into the Word of God. When he talks to Ruth, what does he call her? The Moabitess or the virtuous woman? When he's talking to a no-name, what's he call her? The Moabitess. Look at the Word of God when you read it. Thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. 
Now here's where the two laws of Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25 that I read this morning are being brought together. I mean, here's property redemption, and here's also marrying a widow of a deceased brother in order to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Remember, Elimelech died first, property transferred to Malin. Malin married Ruth. Malin died. Ruth needs to have seed raised up in the name of Malin on that inheritance of Elimelech's. And Boaz is laying that out before no name. Verse 6, And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Here's where you see his greed. He'll take the property, but he won't take the woman. We'll see who's the big loser in the end anyway. He'll take the property, but not the woman. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 38, I believe it is. I want you to see one other man who spoke similar words and see what God did to him so that you'll understand why he's no name. In Deuteronomy 25, what was the brother called who wouldn't marry the widow? The man who, the house of the man who hath his shoe loosed. You know, infamy, shame was upon a man like that. Genesis chapter 38, Judah has three sons. Ur is his firstborn, verse 6. And Onan was his secondborn. And Ur, according to verse 7, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Now Ur had married Tamar in verse 6 before the Lord slew him in verse 7. Verse 8, And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. Verse 9, And so it goes on to describe how Onan didn't perform his duty as a husband to Tamar. And why? Because the seed wouldn't be his. A man realizes that he's got to give the inheritance in the name of his brother. And so Onan wouldn't raise up sons for Tamar and for Ur, his dead brother. The Lord smote him. As you can read right there in verse 10, And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. I mean, Judah was having trouble with his sons. (laughs) Ur was gone because he was wicked. Onan's gone because he's wicked. But Onan's wickedness was in his attitude. I'm not going to raise up a son to my brother because I've got to give it in, his, in my brother's name, Ur's name. Selfishness. Back to Ruth chapter 4. Back to Ruth chapter 4. I cannot redeem it for myself. Now, I just thought he said, I will redeem it. What made the big change? The reminder that this is go- he's going to have to marry a widow, a Moabitess to boot, as Boaz put it, the inheritance is going to have to be given to her son in the name of Elimelech and Malin, not in the name of this particular kinsman. And then he's got Naomi to take care of. Can can you see the full picture? He's got to marry a widow. Listen, the guy may already have a wife, and he can see the domestic trouble beginning already. Ruth, Ruth might be a fertile woman and have a lot of children that he's going to have to dilute his estate. He's got a poor old woman on his hands that he's going to have to take care of. And he's going to have to put this new part of his estate in the name of another man. So out of disrespect for the law of God, no con- little concern for the woman and her mother-in-law, he says, I cannot do it. I cannot redeem it for myself. And if, I'm, I am sounding sarcastic. 
lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Well, isn't that interesting that he can't do it when he just said he would do it? Boaz played it very well, and the Lord again intervened to deter the no-name kinsman. Verse 7, Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Not the rule of Deuteronomy 25, but similar. This no-name kinsman had to take his shoe off and give it to Boaz. Now, Boaz had his shoe. Now, it's hard to get a man's shoe off unless he wants to give it to you. And so Boaz would have a testimony in his hand that this man had agreed. It's like the deed was just transferred in a shoe. Boaz now owned the property, owned the rights to the property, because this man gave them up, and he showed that by giving up his shoe. Verse 8, Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee, So he drew off his shoe. Verse 9, And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malin's of the hand of Naomi. Remember, anything that went to Chilion, there's no one left. Chilion died and Orpah went back to Moab. So it 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 reverted back to Naomi. He says, I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malin's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malin, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Now, I know that in the 20th century, the words purchasing a wife sound foreign. Deeming the property of Naomi and assuming the role of a kinsman because that role, Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, included two aspects. One, get the property back into the, keep the property in the family in this case. And second, raise up seed to the dead brother's name. So he's doing both. But he had to do it through the purchase of property. So he purchased Ruth, in effect, as his wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off among his brethren, and from the gate of his place ye are witnesses this day. Bo, didn't Boaz do an open job? I mean, he, w- he told Ruth right off the bat, we've got a problem, dear. There's a kinsman nearer than I. But then the very next day, he goes to that kinsman, he puts, it all- he puts everything out in the open he needed to. He was very forward about it. You say, but he kept back a little bit about Ruth's reputation. He could- he- couldn't he have built Ruth up a little bit better? He'd be a fool. What does the book of Proverbs say? A wise man keeps it in till afterwards. A fool utters all his mind. I mean, do you think Boaz is going to tell this no-name kinsman that he's madly in love with her and she's a real catch? He calls her a Moabitess. Verse number 11. And all the people that were in the gate, quite a crowd had gathered, and the elders said... We are witnesses. We have observed this transaction from no name to Boaz. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephratah, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman." 
people don't talk much that way anymore. You know, here's a crowd that gathers in the morning and they utter this blessing upon Boaz and the transaction. They first of all say that they want uh, Ruth to be fruitful in Boaz's house like Rachel and Leah were. Now, Rachel and Leah, and whenever you talk about Rachel and Leah, you automatically include their two handmaids, Billa and who was the other one? Just forgot her name, Zilpah and Billa. You include all four, and remember, from all four came the tribe of Israel. I mean, Jacob did father a nation, literally. And what they're saying is, Boaz, we want the same for you with Ruth in your house. Build up thine house like Rachel and Leah, which two did build the house of Israel. I mean, from those two came the twelve sons and the twelve tribes of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. A, a cry and a blessing and a prayer for Boaz to be famous and to do worthy things in this city. And let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. Genesis 38 is where we were at. Ur married Tamar, he died. Onan wouldn't raise up seed to Tamar, so he died. Judah ended up raising a son through Tamar because Tamar was more righteous than Judah and realized seed needed to be raised up for Ur, and that was Perez. Notice the blessing. They are appealing to another situation where, in unfortunate circumstances, a father married a daughter-in-law to raise up seed to a widow. They're appealing to that because out of that came the great tribe of Judah, the result of Judah and Tamar, Perez. See, they're appealing to another similar situation where a widow married another to raise up seed in the name of the deceased brother. In this case, the deceased son in Genesis 38, which is a sad story. That's what verse number 12 is all about. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. Now, isn't that great? You know, now you see the Fleetwood brougham going into the garage, and there's two sitting in it instead of just one. Isn't that great? The mighty man, the wealthy man of Bethlehem is now married to Ruth, that poor little Moabite damsel that had to glean in the field behind his reapers. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. My friends, the Lord does give conception. I read in Psalm 127 and verse 3 that children are the reward of the Lord and his heritage that he gives. Here's providence again. She conceived and she bare a son, which is what you want to raise to keep the family name. God is just dealing with these two women. You say, two women? It looks like Ruth's getting all the blessings. Poor Naomi. Now listen to what, the, what all the women of the city think about Naomi in her new status. Verse 14, And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. Was she without a kinsman before this conception? In this sense, yes. She had lost her husband. She had lost two sons. She had no kinsman that could be called hers. Boaz was not hers. And now these women are saying, God has not left thee without a kinsman. And they're praying that his name may be famous in Israel. 
And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life. And isn't that what grandchildren often are to grandmothers? A restorer of life. Don't they just go wild over their grandchildren? What's the biggest concern you have with a grandmother and your children? They're going to spoil them rotten because they love them so much and it restores life to them. They're getting old. They're thinking of death. And here comes this little child in the world. They remember all the good times they had when you were a child, and it restores youth to them again. And these women are just praising Naomi. Look at the good things that are happening to you. You, He shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. Now, every testimony that we've received in this book so far that the Holy Spirit has recorded has been Holy Spirit-inspired. What does this testimony say about the value of Ruth compared to sons? Worth seven of them. Such a virtuous woman who has stuck in there with her mother-in-law. And look at that little, little tiny phrase inside the commas that says, which loveth thee. Did anybody ever love a mother-in-law more than Ruth did in the faithfulness she showed her mother-in-law, the obedience, the humility, the submission, the honesty, the piety, the diligence to provide for? Was there ever? Which loveth thee, these women say. Just a short little phrase, but so much meaning in it since we've read the whole story here. Which is better to thee than seven sons hath borne him. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it and probably spoiled it rotten like most grand, like grandmothers are prone to do. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. Is that accurate? Yes. Raised up seed for Elimelech. Raised in the, in the, in the place of Malin. There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And listen, if that just doesn't bring tears to your eyes with those words, it does mine. Just, the Holy Spirit just interjects, he is the father of Jesse. He is the father, the the father of David. This poor little Moabite girl from the land of Moab who forsook all for the Lord and had nothing and said, where you go, I'll go. I don't know where it's going to be. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. I don't know what it's going to be like. Your people will be my people. I'll get to learn the customs of the Israelites. Your God will be my God. I'll die where you die. I'll be buried there. I'm totally forgetting my past. I'm following you. That poor little damsel who had to go out and glean is now married to the mighty and wealthy Boaz of Bethlehem. She had a son. His name was Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. She gave birth to the grandfather of King David. She was the great-grandmother of King Solomon, etc., etc., right down to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verses 18 through 22 just briefly give us a little historical sketch of how the book fits into the overall scheme of things. Remember that Jesus Christ said in the New Testament, search the scriptures, 
For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Where did I come from? Read it for yourselves. The book of Ruth is given to us to tell us how God brought his son into the world, providentially dealing with a poor little Moabitess widow. Now these are the generations of Perez. Do you know who Fer- who's the father of Perez? Judah. The mother? Tamar. Perez begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon. Now those names so far between Perez and Nashon were men who lived in Egypt and helped build Pharaoh's pyramids. Nashon was one of the poor men who died in the wilderness and never made it, never, did not make it into the land of Canaan. A captain and chief of the tribe of Judah, however, this family kept right on through with the chiefs of the tribe of Judah. And Nation begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz, and his wife's name was Rahab. Salmon married Rahab after they came into the land of Canaan. Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. The genealogy of David includes God's providence with three women. And they're all right here in this short little span. Tamar, was that a mess in Genesis 38? Did God providentially overrule the wrath of man in that case? Indeed. Rahab, a harlot, did God use her? Indeed. Ruth, the Moabites, who committed whoredom with Israel and caused them to go astray in the error of Peor, according to Numbers chapter 25. Did God use a Moabite woman? All in the space of about ten generations, God's providence used circumstances that you would have been pressed to explain at the time. Remember Naomi. She went into Moab full. Husband, two sons. She came back empty. She's almost fretting, it seems, there in chapter 1, when she says, I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi? seeing the Lord hath testified against me and the Almighty hath afflicted me. She wants her name changed to Mara, which meant bitterness. But did the Lord have things in store for her? Had, did the Lord always know that he was going to have those things in store? Sure he did. His eternal counsel had planned exactly what he was going to do with Ruth, the wife of Malin. Now briefly, let me review the application of this book of Ruth and what you should have learned from it and why we studied it. The providence of God is a lesson that we should learn and remember for our comfort. When we, Even when we sin and when we confess that crime to God, God has a way of using that. Don't you ever take a fatalistic attitude, though, towards sin and think that it's less wickedness because God's able to bring good out of it? Let us do evil that good may come. God has a word for men like that. Their damnation is just. Romans chapter 3 and verse 8. But even in our sins, God had providentially overrules it for his own praise. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. Malin married a foreign woman. Should he have? No. Did God use the foreign woman? Indeed. Ruth, the result of a transgression. Perez, the result of a transgression. Rahab, a woman known for her transgressions. 
Naomi appeared to have lost everything, but the Lord blessed her in the end with much. Don't measure your things by circumstances or your timing. Yes, it looked poor for Naomi, but God had great things in store for her. Look at the end of her life. I'll bet she was well taken care of by Boaz because Boaz was a liberal man. I'm sure he took great care of her. And I'm sure that Obed grew up and took care of her also. And that's what the women were talking about. He'll sustain thee when thou art old, as we read there at the end of chapter 4. The providence of God can be seen in Ruth's hap to light on the field of Boaz. The Holy Spirit tells us about this rich man. Two verses later, Ruth happens to have her steps directed to his field. You devise the plan, God will direct the steps, and I trust in a merciful God. I believe in Him that He knows what's best for us. Amen. Better than we can imagine in our own hearts. The kinsman Boaz had to see came to the gate where Boaz was, Boaz was first thing in the morning. Boaz sits down, there's the man. Behold, there he is, right there on the spot. The Lord gave conception to Boaz and Ruth and granted them a son. No problems there conceiving because the Lord opened her womb and Obed was born. The providence of God is a lesson we ought to get from the book of Ruth. That even though things look bad, even though you think the Lord has testified against you, you don't know what he has in store for you down the road. I mean, Job thought the Lord had testified against him too. But he had things doubled to him in the end. And I, and I believe that if Naomi thought she went out full with Elimelech and two sons, listen, she was so poor when she left, she had to go to Moab for food. Now, how full is that? She's just comparing it to how she was returning. She was empty. I'll bet with Boaz, she had a whole lot more than she had with Elimelech, or she wouldn't have had to run to Moab. The virtues of Ruth are something we were supposed to have learned from this study. My point in preaching this sermon is for you women to provoke you, to want to emulate Ruth, to be a virtuous woman like Ruth was. Ruth, first of all, showed great zeal for the Lord by forsaking all that she had. And some of you women have forsaken churches and family and friends and houses and security for the Lord. And I love you for that because you're a woman like Ruth. Jesus said, if you're not worthy to forsake those things, you're not worthy to be his disciple. But you've done that. And even though the Lord said that when you've done it, you're still to say you're an unprofitable servant and you've done that which is your duty to do, I commend you for it because Boaz commended Ruth for it. And I love a woman who's willing to forsake the temporal and carnal things of this world. Ruth did that. I hope our women will emulate that. Ruth showed great respect for her mother-in-law by obedience, diligence, and honesty. She obeyed everything she said, did she not? Every point. She showed diligence in providing for her mother-in-law. She showed honesty in telling her everything that happened as she experienced, as she met Boaz. Ruth showed great submission and humility before Boaz and the other reapers. Didn't she? Calling him Lord, continually calling herself handmaid and servant, and that the favor she was receiving from Boaz was by grace, not by right. An attitude of humility and submission you don't see much anymore. And the only place you're going to find it to be encouraged in that direction is right here. In the pages of Ruth and a few other places. Ruth showed great initiative. I'll go out and glean. 
She came up with the idea. She didn't waste time. She went out and began to glean. She showed diligence by gleaning from morning until evening. She showed patience by picking a menial task to provide for her family, and she finished the job. She finished the job, women. When you take on a task, make sure you finish it like Ruth did. She showed great thoughtfulness with the parched corn and bringing it back to Naomi. Now, wasn't that thoughtful? Little things done for other people. When you read Proverbs chapter 31 about the virtuous woman, her mouth is filled with kindness and she gives to the poor. She does little things of thoughtfulness for others. She showed great wisdom by tarrying in the house when Boaz came on the scene. Subtle wisdom. And she showed wisdom by obeying Naomi and her wild scheme to go get Boaz. Ruth was a virtuous woman. I hope that all of you women, young and old, will want to be like Ruth, that you'll read the book of Ruth, that this, that this preaching will have helped you understand the book and that you can read it and be reminded of the things that you want to be to be a woman like Ruth. If you're a woman like Ruth, God has in store for you a man like Boaz. Why can I say that? Based on promises such as this, in Psalm chapter 37 and verse 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Did Ruth delight herself in the Lord? There's Ruth and Orpah. Orpah delighted herself in the carnal appearance of blessing in Moab. Ruth said, Whatever my lot will be, I cast in for Israel and the God of Israel. Is that delighting in the Lord? Your God will be my God. She got her Boaz. I read in Psalm 84 and verse 11 that no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Was Ruth an upright woman? She had a reputation that was sterling. You couldn't have questioned Ruth's reputation. She walked uprightly. Did the Lord withhold any good thing from her? Husband, money, son. What else did she need? The God of Israel. She had it all. The, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I read in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 that faith is believing God is and He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. See, I believe that. I have faith that God rewards those who diligently seek Him. Ruth diligently sought God by going to Israel and willing to give up everything for the God of Israel. And God rewarded her. God will take care of girls and women who will give themselves to him and forsake all else. What kind of a man was Boaz? Let me briefly remind you a few things about him. He was a mighty man of wealth. And did he practice any rules of Bible economics? How about rule two? Pay God first. You know, there's more than one way to pay God. You can put it in the box the back, and he probably did that at the local Baptist church in Bethlehem, but he also gave liberally to the poor that God had told him to take care of. The liberal soul shall be made fat. Boaz was liberal. The men of this congregation ought to be liberal. When you have an opportunity to help someone, do it for them. Isn't it fun, Brother Greg? Brother Greg and I have a secret, but it's great to show a little bit of charity towards someone and to do it liberally. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And the Lord blesses the liberal soul. Boaz was that way. Remember when he said, let her even glean among the sheaves. 
and in fact dropped some on purpose for her. There was his liberality. He was a mighty man of wealth by knowing his labor and his sources of production. He was out there on the threshing floor in person, even though he had a foreman that he trusted. He was there sleeping in the corn to be watching his means of production. A wise man working smart. Rule six. He was a virtuous man himself. He was religious in his daily life. When he approached his reapers, he blessed them in the name of the Lord. When he met Ruth, he called upon God's blessing upon her. He called down God's blessing upon her for having forsaken Moab to move to Israel. He called God's blessing down upon her for having taken care of her mother-in-law, Naomi, a righteous and religious man. He showed moderation by not rejecting Ruth. You know, I can imagine some Pharisee waking up in the middle of the night and having Ruth there at the foot of his bed would have thought of all the bad things in the world that he could have said to her about what a terrible woman she was. Matthew Poole, if he would have been laying there, would have done that. That's a Puritan commentator. But not Boaz. He was a moderate man. He thought of all the circumstances. Listen, this is a virtuous woman. So that he did not reject her overtures, overtures, her requirement that he marry her, as he put it a couple verses later. He showed moderation, and then he showed initiative in getting her, did he not? Naomi could trust Ruth, just sit down, sit down with me. Before the day's out, you're going to know where you stand in this matter, because Boaz will not rest until the matter is done. There's initiative. He fully obeyed the law of God and did not try to take Ruth without due process. She says to him, will you marry me? You're my near kinsman. He said, I'm your near kinsman, but there's one nearer than I. Fully obeyed the law of God, put it out in the open, trusted the Lord that obedience would be rewarded. But you know how men often think, now wait a minute, if I go give this man the opportunity for property that he can redeem in a good woman, I'm going to lose it all. So they go covertly and try to go against the law of God, thinking, I'll do it my way, like Abraham with Hagar. You know, I'll get a son, but I'll do it my way. Boaz didn't do it. You obey, God rewards obedience. No good thing will he withhold from who? Them that walk uprightly. He gives the desires of the heart to who? Those that delight themselves in the Lord. Delight thyself in the law, according to Psalm 1, and God will make your way prosperous. You trust God's word, like Boaz did, and he will bless that. Boaz was a good man, and he had money to boot. A lot of money. He was called a wealthy man there in the first verse of chapter 2. The reward for seeking first God and his kingdom is seen clearly in these two women. Naomi didn't stay any longer in Moab than she had to. She came back to Israel. Did God bless her? She was fuller than when she left. Ruth applied the basics of Christian wisdom, and she became the mother to David and to Christ, a Moabitess. Orpah. Let's think about Orpah for a minute. How much more do we know about Orpah? Who'd she marry? Did she have any sons? Did she ever have an inheritance? Did she ever disappear into a garage in a Fleetwood brome? She's left in the land of Moab, obscure, unknown. Why? She made a smart choice. She wasn't going to be a hypocrite in Israel. She'd choose the things of this world first in the land of Moab. Let it be a warning. Anyone who turns from God when they have an opportunity to follow him 
God will leave them in obscurity. But you choose the Lord like Ruth did, and he'll bless you abundantly, exceeding abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. The glory of Christ is seen in this book, as all scripture points to Christ, by looking at that short little genealogy with three women. You know, when you come over to Matthew chapter 1, you read about these three women. They're all mentioned there, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. All three foreign wives, all three. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. So was Ruth. They're all mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 to remind us what God can do with circumstances in bringing his son into this world. And last of all, Boaz, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, shows us the kind redeemer that we have in our Savior. As Boaz redeemed Ruth from this other kinsman and bought her portion and took her to him to be his bride, so the Lord has chosen us when we weren't fit. Instead of Boaz marrying an Israelite woman, he marries a Moabitess. Instead of the Lord coming and calling the righteous, he comes and calls sinners to repentance and makes us his own. Us, who were by nature Moabites, the children of wrath, God has made his only sons through Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer, and in fact, the great-great-grandson of Boaz himself. May the Lord bless the preaching of the book of Ruth. I hope you'll keep it in memory. And my prayer and my purpose for this preaching is 10 years from now. And what a day we have 10 years from now. Look at all these young girls who will be young women 20 years from now. All these young girls will be older women, married most likely with children, that will have some virtuous women. But not just them, you women who are already married with children. I trust this book will provoke you to want to be like Ruth and build up your own Boaz that the Lord's given you by half. And isn't that how we've all met? Boy, some of the stories, we ought to have testimony night for how we met each other sometime. The Lord's been merciful to all of us. I trust that we'll have some godly women. And I believe it when the Bible says a virtuous woman is better than seven average sons. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word to some polished cornerstones in this palace.